Hey, I'm Cal. Hey, and I'm Kathy. We're the co-hosts of the Heal Well Healthcare Podcast Interdisciplinary, and we're here to uh, invite you to become patrons of our podcast. We're going to team up with the platform called Patreon to invite you even to become an even more active member of this community. So we've got a couple of levels, uh, depending on your interest and uh, and passion about this particular topic and how much you love me and Kathy, perhaps. Uh, so. Uh, the first level, you can become an official patron. It's $5 a month, and it allows you to have early access to episodes and, of course, to know that you are part of making sure this podcast keeps happening. Kathy, tell them what else they could win. Oh, well, level two is called All Access Patron, which gives you early access to our episodes and access to bonus episodes Boom. for $10 a month. And then we've got the VIP patron. So you get all those other things, early access, bonus episodes, and then a monthly, what they call AMAs, which are ask me anything, which means that you get uh, unfettered one-on-one-ish access uh, to me and or, or both uh, Kathy uh, to ask us anything, uh, something that came up on the podcast, something that you're uh, trying to blow up in your own community and how we can help you, whatever it might be. So uh, become a patron and help us get the word out and build our community and Thanks already for the love that you're bringing to interdisciplinary and heal well and making the world a better place. We love the love and we love you right back. Hello, I'm Cal Cates. And I'm Kathy Ryan. Welcome to another episode of Interdisciplinary. In this podcast, massage therapy educators, practitioners, and positive deviants, Kathy Ryan and me, Cal Cates, we use research, science, experience, and humor to explore the broad landscape of healthcare through a truly interdisciplinary lens. You'll always learn something, you'll always laugh, and you'll come away better informed and with real things you can do in your own community and practice to create a more compassionate and collaborative system of care for all humans. Please be sure to like us and share and use all your social media might out there. Leave us a review. Give us some stars. Tell your dog. Tell your family. Tell whoever that you're listening to Interdisciplinary, and they should too. Now for the moment you've all been waiting for, today's pun. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready, my friend. <laughs> if two vegans get in an argument, is it still considered a beef? Oh, so Kathy, what's happening in British Columbia? Um, okay, COVID is real. It's happening. Uh, vaccine rollout here in Canada is uh, a little bit slower than it is in some other parts of the world. Uh, it really was just a, I've got um, some hospital staff in my practice, physicians and nurses, and it really was just a couple of weeks ago that they were getting the call uh, to be vaccinated. And um, just this past week, we got a notice sent out from our regulator. We've got five different um, health regions in, in BC, health authorities within our province. And uh, so far, two of the health regions have sent a notice out that uh, any um, healthcare provider um, out in the community who's doing direct patient care can register for the vaccine. Not my region yet, a little slower here in the north where... A lot of small communities spread over a vast territory, as I've talked about before. So like I say, just it's been a couple of weeks since our, our physicians and, and nurses working in hospital have gotten the call. So that's kind of where we're, we're at. And um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's a very mixed bag across America, and uh, our guests, of course, are going to talk uh, about that a bit. Um, but uh, I think you know we've got one of a uh, one of our board members at Healwell uh, works in the um, in the hospital, and she said that that the hospital where she works in the D.C. area recently felt that their levels were at a place where they could close their sort of COVID unit, um, and she's like, it's it's positive, but it's also it also means that. COVID patients are now sort of on units with other patients and it kind of raises everybody's concern level. Um, hopefully the, the numbers will continue to go down, but I, I heard a, I heard um, superhero Dr. Anthony Fauci earlier this week saying that, um, you know, we're headed in the right direction and he was very positive. And then he said, as long as everyone keeps masking and social distancing and, and I'm like, keeps, they're not doing it now. <laughs> what are you talking about? But okay. Um, and then, you know, we have states where the governors have just said, we're good. You can everybody just go back to, to whatever you were doing. So um, yeah, it's really, uh, it's the wild west, even though you live in the wild west. Well, and, uh, and it, <laughs> it has had moments of being the wild west, uh, not only during COVID, but in other ways as well. So, yeah. And, and you know, I think that's the the big push in the, in the message that's going out here is, even though you have the vaccine, we still have to wear a mask. We still need to be mindful of distancing, you know, because I've had a couple of my clients say, you know, you'll probably be glad when we get the vaccine, you won't have to wear a mask anymore. And I'm like, I'll still be wearing a mask. And so will you if you're yeah. coming to see me. For a good long while. And wash your yeah. hands, by the way. <laughs> and wash your hands. <laughs> Several <right>. times. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, we have two, uh, I'm so excited to yeah. introduce our guests to have them introduce themselves. Uh, they are from an amazing organization. Uh, we Got Us Project, uh, based in Boston, but it sounds like you guys are kind of all over. And um, you're so amazing and fancy. I just want to give you the mic and, and let you guys tell us um, who you are, uh, Christian and Eileen, and um, what's your organization? And, and gosh, what, what all do we need to know about what you're doing and what we can do? Um, I think Eileen was saying I could go first. Um, so <laughs> hi, everyone. Um, my name is Christian Malachi Porter. I'm a sophomore at Harvard College studying the history of science on the medicine and society track with a joint concentration, so basically a double major because Harvard uses weird words, with African, African American studies. So I'm really interested in the intersections of race and health and looking at how we got here um, based on our history. Um, I'm also doing a minor in global health and health policy, so I don't just want to know the history behind these problems, but I'm really interested in solving them and harnessing the power of policy and community, advocacy, activism, and all these things to make sure people can live longer and healthier lives. Um, involved in a lot of things on campus, but my main involvements have to do with my Black identity and um, my interest in healthcare and community health. So. Um, Vice President of the Black Pre-Med Society because I hope to become a physician one day. Also work with the Black Health Matters Conference this past year, um, Black Students Association, and of course, We Got Us, where I'm on the educational team. So I think the main thing, my main role with We Got Us is producing educational materials and coming up with a cohesive educational curriculum that allows people um, in underserved and marginalized communities to really understand what's going on in a way that is palatable and understandable and digestible. Because a lot of this stuff that's coming out from the CDC and CNN and all these other acronyms is not making sense. It's super jargony and it's difficult. 
even for me, someone who's taking four pre-med classes, <laughs> sense. so um, we're just trying to make things make sense for the people that are at highest risk and need it to make sense the most. Um, and I've also really helped with leading our empowerment sessions, which I'm sure Eileen can tell you more about as a project manager. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, Christian. So a little bit about me. Um, my name is Eileen Nguyen, obviously. I'm currently a third year at Emmanuel College. I study biology and I minor in neuroscience and theology. I currently work in a lab that focuses on neuroscience and the visual systems over at Harvard, and it's just very interesting work. Um, but I'm interested in becoming a physician in the future and also getting my master's in public health to directly have the tools to address a lot of these issues that we're, we're going to talk about. Um, coming from a Black community in my background, I've seen very directly how lack of access and accessibility to both the language and the resources can affect the health of people both short-term and long-term. Um, and so, especially with COVID, when I heard about this organization, I wanted to become a part of it and be on the leadership team and help as much as I could empower our community. And that's really what we do. So We Got Us is a collective of Black pre-med students, health professionals, and community organizers working to empower the Black and Brown communities during this pandemic. And our mission is to make information about COVID, the vaccines, and other resources available, and like Christian said, digestible, and in order to just help people remain healthy and safe in these crazy, crazy times. So some of the things we offer are these virtual empowerment sessions where we lead a discussion about the history of medical racism and we provide the necessary information as well as a lot of the keywords that are used so that even when they leave us, they can better be able to understand the different types of vernaculars that, that, um, that the information is, is used in, in the general public. And so our sessions are tailored to individual needs and as you guys reached out on our website, that's one of the best ways that different types of organizations can reach out to us to request um, a virtual empowerment session. But some of the other things we offer, um, we have a research team dedicated to conducting community-informed research to ensure that our programs are as effective as possible. We also are starting to work on our in-person outreach, and that's going to be a lot of canvassing with information about the COVID vaccine and also COVID testing, different things like that. And just again, how to get access as wide range as possible. Um, and I think for now, that's as <laughs> much information that I've got to say, but our website, we got us.org has a bunch of other things that we do. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> which, which is what I said when I went to your website was wow. And I, I watched the video clip on your website, you know, information about the vaccine. And I'm like, okay, that's the best I've seen so far. You know, just talking in, in real language about the vaccine to educate people. I encourage everybody to go there and check it out. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think language is, is an unexplored uh, area. When we talk about limitations of access, I, I think people think more about logistics and finance and things like that. They don't, think about, if I don't understand what this pamphlet says, I'm not going to call, I'm not going <laughs> to do whatever it might be. Um, yeah. 
So one of the things that inspired us to reach out to you all is that as a as a healthcare organization and, and as a healthcare podcast, we have been getting questions from primarily white providers who are saying, you know, I'm being, I just got my like invitation or whatever to get the vaccine, but I know that black and brown communities aren't getting them. So I'm going to turn it down. And I'm like, well, then it's just going to go to another white person. Like that's not actually the way to address this, but I am curious about how can we meaningfully support efforts like yours and just in our own communities where we see the disparities, turning down the vaccine is not the solution. Um, and also, I guess maybe the first question I really, I, I'm really hoping that you can um, blow the lid off of this idea of vaccine hesitancy, or at least how much power is being put behind that by white people who don't want to think about it differently. <laughs> Yeah, that's a beautiful question. Now I'll, I'll kind of tackle two things and I'll pass it on to Christian. So um, like you said, this word vaccine hesitancy has been used and we've really been trying to rewrite that narrative because it's simply not true. And a bunch of studies have shown that when access is given to black and brown communities that they do take these vaccines and that's present in the flu shot and different things like that. Um, and we, we're also seeing some other like underlying things happening where when vaccines are given to some of these communities first, other people from outside of the community kind of go in and take some of those resources, right? So I, I completely agree with you that this term has been used as, as a cop-out really to, to not even discuss some of the other issues that are really, really going on. And it's hard because when you do that, then you can't address some of the other problems, right? You can't address the fact that a lot of people have language barriers that don't even allow them to really understand what they're consenting to, what's being put in their body. And on television, we saw like some a lot of these campaigns that in a way just tried to coerce people into taking the vaccine by having these visuals of Black people giving other Black people vaccines without addressing what's in it what's going on, what are your bodily reactions going to be, and why really you should take it, not just you should take it because other Black people are taking it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I also think the idea of vaccine hesitancy, um, a lot of times we talk about it in a vacuum, or we talk about medical mistrust in a vacuum, and we don't contextualize these things. So we say, Black people aren't getting this vaccine, period, full stop. Black people are hesitant to get vaccines, period, full stop. Mm -hmm. um, black people are anti-vaxxers, period, full stop. I think anti-vax has a very negative connotation, but that connotation has nothing to do with black communities, I think. And so when we talk about vaccine hesitancy, we have to contextualize it when while looking at medical racism as a whole. So the medical field continues to codify racism in the present day. A study in 2016 came out saying many um, medical professionals don't believe that Black people feel pain. And this is in 2016. Right. And if you look at the roots of the medical field, it was built in America to codify racism. It was built as a vehicle for racism to persist and to continue to exist and to manifest itself in so many different eras. When you look at the fact that healthcare for Black people in the antebellum period was literally only to make sure that they were able to work. Yeah. Then you have in the Reconstruction era, when hospitals would not take Black patients 
but they also wouldn't train black doctors. They wouldn't train black nurses. So black communities had to build a whole hospital movement to take care of themselves. But they would experiment on black bodies. Exactly. And I think that's the other thing, the entire field of gynecology being based on the yeah. experimentation of black women. Yeah. And even in the 1900, early 1900s, black patients refused to get medical care at white facilities because they thought it was basically giving consent to be experimented on. And then as late as the 60s, way past the eugenics movement, hundreds of thousands of forced sterilizations on black women throughout the South. So I think we have to really talk about, well, if all these things have happened, why would you expect someone to trust you if you've done nothing to rectify those things or even apologize? And I think that's one of the biggest things. So really addressing medical mistrust in a holistic way. Yeah. Um, and then I think working with communities is very important. A lot of times you'll plop a one single singular vaccine site in black communities and you don't work with existing community organizations. You don't try to educate people. You don't realize in a place like Boston that a lot of these communities that are um, mostly Haitian immigrants that a lot of times will not understand what you are saying, especially if people whose first language is English don't understand the mechanisms of our mRNA and stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't try to address these problems. So I think it's very multifaceted, but I think in a way the medical field and medical institutions have to be more intentional about meeting people where they are and not just putting the onus on black people or even blaming black people for not trusting these systems. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate you, you know, I, I mean, I, I was making some notes um, when, when Eileen was talking and that, you know, I think that white people in general, not all white people, of course, just like we can't say all black people, but <laughs> lots of white people think, well, Tuskegee was a long time ago, or Holmesburg prison was a long time ago, or J. Marion Sims or whatever examples. And it's like, yeah, and those are huge and egregious. And Black people are being treated poorly by white providers today. They don't have to be experimented upon or given drugs they didn't know they were getting to be not getting good health care. So the trust is earned in the present moment, like you said, Christian. And I, I think that I, white people don't, we don't want to, we don't want to own it. Um, and we really don't see how we're participating. And aren't interested in seeing. And so I, I do, I feel like this vaccine hesitancy thing is an easy way to brush it off. But to, so in the empowerment sessions, who are those geared toward and what, what do you guys cover in that? I mean, the empowerment sessions are geared towards anyone and everyone who wants to get it. Um, when we had our launch event uh, last Thursday now, one like piece of feedback that we got that was super impactful is that a lot of people in our audience were healthcare professionals and were people who are well-versed in the language of COVID. And even they said, I walked away with this having better tools and even walking away, like understanding more about COVID, which is something that we didn't necessarily expect. And we were so happy because it's like, if these healthcare professionals are understanding it more, like imagine the impact that we're having on people who don't really understand the language. Um, but like I said, we kind of go through a lot of the terms and definitions that are readily used we go in depth on how the vaccines work, but we try to break it down in a way that is very digestible and understandable with lots of analogies. And then we go into the individual vaccines from P Pfizer, Moderna, as well as Johnson & Johnson now. 
we talk about the efficacy and also we look into as well, like the racial distribution of the trials um, and then the FAQs. And then we open it up for questions and discussions. Well, and I think uh, you've made a really, a lot of really important points, but one point I'll touch on Eileen is just talking about don't make assumptions that all healthcare providers really understand the language either, or really understand the mechanism of a vaccine. You know, certainly I've seen in my own community there, it's word is getting out that there are a couple of physicians who don't do the flu shot and have been vocal about not doing the COVID vaccine. So, you know, how, I think the question that comes out for folks is, okay, if my physician is saying, I'm not going to do it, you know, how do you have that conversation with people? That's a good question. And (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I necessarily have the answer. Um, I think one thing that we make sure to emphasize in our empowerment sessions is that at the end of it, we're not telling you that you need to get this vaccine. We're just giving you the information to make an informed decision. Um, and you're absolutely right that when your physician says you're not getting a vaccine, that influence is is important. It's impactful. But I think that everybody kind of has to make a decision for themselves and look at the different facts at hand and see what's best for them. And that's, that's the most that we can do. I don't know if Christian wants to jump in here. Yeah, I think the other thing is empowering people to go beyond their physician or go beyond um, what they've heard on the internet or what they've heard in certain certain circles, like giving people objective information and allowing them to make their own choice. I think one thing that we try to do um, as someone who is like one of the co-leaders of the empowerment sessions is we try to break things down because this stuff is complicated. And even as people who are in college learning about this stuff, it takes years to fully understand all the biochemistry and molecular biology that goes into this stuff. And so it's really important to break things down to a level where it's digestible and not only digestible, but it's just like common sense and almost like fun to learn. And so when people are able to learn these things, like our, our analogy that we use for vaccines is that a vaccine is basically showing your body showing the assembly line conveyor belt in your body that builds all these, builds an army to fight bad things off. It's showing a wanted poster of the bad guy. (laughs) Now that they have the wanted poster, when the bad guy enters your body, they know who to fight. And it breaks down all these things to basically saying that the vaccine shows your body who to fight without actually getting your body sick. Mm -hmm. And at that level, people start to say, oh, well, that, that works for me. That's a, a choice I'm willing to make. That's a risk I'm willing to take. Yeah. And it'll, it empowers people to be able to understand material that's given to them, but also just to make an informed decision, like Eileen was saying. Yeah. Do you get questions about, I, the question that I hear a lot um, is, or the concern I hear is, it just, it was, it was finalized too fast. And, you know, and we just say, well, yeah, it was an all hands on deck project. Like, you know, (laughs) it wasn't a guy in his garage, like fast tracking it. A lot of people worked on this, but how do you address those concerns? Yeah. So two major concerns was that, that it's fast tracked. It's not as good. And so one thing we go into is that efficacy. Um, And we do go in a little bit of background about the, 
the history of like how vaccines are made and what that process kind of looks like. Cause I will admit like even I, when I heard like how, and I was like, I didn't really understand that process at all. I didn't understand how the grants worked. And, but like you said, it was all hands on diet. Everybody stopped what they were doing really to work on this one thing to get it out. Um, and I know the other big concern that people have are the symptoms. And um, like Christian described, it's giving your body that wanted poster and your body is going to work a little bit, right? Because those troops are going to start looking for that, that bad guy. And so those were our two biggest concerns. And that is something that we do try to address because we've seen a wide range of people. Some people, I got my second shot and the second day I was wiped out. Like <laughs> I was in bed with body aches, a headache, but I've talked to different people and older people and first shot, second shot, they were completely fine. So it is like this isn't going to be the same for everybody. But again, this is the information that you have. This may or may not happen to you and just how to move forward if you do get the vaccine and you are experiencing these, these types of things. And I think everything, um, I think one thing to keep in mind is that this is not a new virus. Like coronaviruses have been around for a while. They've been a topic of study for a while. So I think one thing that we do try to cover, obviously not in too much detail because it's a bit complicated, but this isn't new. This isn't the first time we've seen it. There was a major outbreak of SARS um, in 2002, I want to say. Um, and so a lot of research went into it then. So we're really just picking up on decades of like, fragments of research and just putting it together. Um, but that is a completely valid concern. I can say myself when I heard they were coming out with a vaccine that quickly as someone who's super interested in HIV research and HIV vaccines, and we don't have that yet. I was like, Hmm, but again, I had to do research and all those things. And, um, I'm, I'm definitely comfortable with it now. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, not to go too far afield, but you know, you think about HIV and, and the, the misunderstandings about who gets HIV and even the truth about who gets HIV. It's, it's really clear why it's not a priority. And, you know, that's a whole nother episode for us to talk about, <laughs> but yeah, I, so in terms of um, what's the, what are some of the useful things that like, I'm, I work in a hospital, so I got lucky and I got vaccinated really early. And when I heard on the radio yesterday, that incredibly low percentage of people in America who have the vaccine. I mean, I knew I was lucky, but I was like, wow, this is really, what, what can we do? Is it useful to attend an empowerment session and be able to talk to people in our community? Should we be reaching out to churches and community centers? Like where are the places we can go to actively be involved in closing these gaps of access and information? That's a great question. I think part of why we're seeing um, a lot of low vaccine numbers is because the rollout has just not been great. But also in communities that are being rolled out with the vaccines, um, people aren't feeling ready to get it at that moment in time. They're not feeling if you have the information to get it, and so they forego it. And we've seen a lot of waste that way, right? We've seen a lot of ex vaccines being... Um, defrosted and just expired because they couldn't go to anyone. So I think these these empowerment sessions and different resources, again, that we also have on our website are incredibly useful because, again, it gives people the information that they need to not only for themselves be able to make a decision, but be able to talk to other members of their direct community about this decision, right? And it's just one more person. I know 
I, I work in hospitals as well. And I've been super lucky that I, I've gotten the vaccine and I've been super vocal just about my, like to my friend and family and community group about why I got it, when I got it, where I got it, which one I got, and also that I'm okay, I'm okay right? Um, and so I think that word of mouth is incredibly helpful because one thing that studies show is that when you get information from people you're, of your community, you're a lot more likely to listen to that and trust that and be able to make a better informed decision for yourself. So that's indispensable. Yeah, I completely agree. I think empirical evidence is huge. Um, empirical being what I see is what I believe. So if I'm Eileen's friend and I see that she got the vaccine and she's okay, then I'm like, well, okay, it's not that deep. I'll probably be okay. <laughs> I think that's a really big thing. You know, seeing someone on TV, no matter what color they are, getting a vaccine and you don't know them and you don't see their experience after or before. Um, you'll be wary, but seeing people in your community get it is um, one way that empirically you can know that, all right, I should be fine. And I think that's really huge. Um, but I think empowerment sessions like ours or any community organization, because there's so many doing amazing work, um, is super helpful in communities that need it. And also just efforts from medical institutions to make information readily available and more accessible and digestible. Um, is is probably the way to go in terms of marginalized communities. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know if you guys can comment on this, or if this is kind of out of your out of your area. But I was uh, reading an article yesterday about how in some of the southern states now uh, in America that we are seeing um, vaccine appointments go unbooked. And like the sort of demand is dropping, but in northern states we're seeing the opposite. And um, you know, I think that this is not a, a, the fighting of a virus should not be a political conversation, but in our country, it has become that. And I, seeing Southern state governors saying, basically COVID's over, you know, go back to your lives. And I wonder if you have a sense of, you know, where there is demand and where there seems to be a lag in demand, is it just a lack of belief in the virus or, I mean, is it completely unrelated to the vaccine or any concern about the vaccine itself, but more like, it seems like overkill. Um, I think being from a Southern state, um, I think it definitely depends on the portion of the population you're talking about. I think there are there is a lot of belief um, among certain groups that the virus is not real. It doesn't have an impact. Um, a lot of people don't wear masks, like specifically being from Atlanta, if you travel to northern, more white, um, going on rural suburbs, like masks are not being worn. Um, so I think it definitely depends on the portion of the population you're talking about. But even um, my parents, they went and were able to get vaccinated and they said nobody was there. So I feel like part of it is not trying to reach out to certain communities. I also think the rollout makes it very difficult um, because you can say, okay, well, people over 65 can get vaccinated, but how are they gonna get there? How are they gonna know that they're allowed to get vaccinated? Um, who is going to allow them to take off of work, right? right? And also like putting vaccine centers in communities that you feel like will have higher uptake maybe. But um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting phenomenon. Um, and it's sad, as Eileen said earlier, that a lot of the vaccine is going to waste. Um, and it's not always people who are hesitant about taking the vaccine. Sometimes it's people who just don't 
believe in the virus at all. And we're never going to take it in the first place. Yeah. And to echo what Christian said, like, I think we have to be very careful about writing people off. I think it's, it's a multi-layered, multifaceted phenomenon. And part of it comes from the unfortunate reality that COVID has become very political um, in America. And so then of course, if people don't believe in COVID itself, of course, like they're going to be a lot less likely to get a vaccine. So, um, but with that being said, I think, that yeah we just have to be very careful about like writing writing whole communities off because I think often there's this north and south comparison um that can sometimes be harmful so well and I think it's really important too you know because we've seen some of that in Canada as well there was a remote indigenous community where uh the vaccine was being brought to and no one was showing up and the physician who was in control of it said nobody shows up by tomorrow, we're leaving. So where was the breakdown? Was that community actually given the information that this is the day that we're coming? And it turned out that they came a day earlier than what they had originally said. So, you know, I think you have to really explore, okay, where is the breakdown? You know, what actually, you know, is at the root of why people did not show up for the vaccine? You know, and, and and Christian, I think this ties into some of your work and looking at historically, you know, we have to go back and look historically at what is the root of some of these issues in order to figure out how are we going to change this moving forward. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think um, I, com- I just want to echo Eileen's point about writing people off. I feel like there's been a lot of discourse. Um, I mean, America is very politically polarized, but there's been a lot of discourse about Southern states and just leave them behind, like red states this, red states that. And I think there, as we saw with Georgia, my home state, there are a lot of people in these red states, quote unquote, that are doing a lot of work to be progressive. There are a lot of progressive communities and there are a lot of marginalized communities that do not have a political voice due to voter suppression and voter disenfranchisement. So I think writing off entire states um, is going to have detrimental implications, especially for communities of color. And especially because those communities are hardest hit by COVID, uh, if we start saying, well, let's just not give as many vaccines to Southern states, um, it's, it's gonna be very bad for the communities that need it the most. Do you anticipate any uh, shift? Because I know, I mean, part of the problem with uh, like the, I think it's the Pfizer one that needs the special temperature and that Johnson and Johnson doesn't, um, doses are going to waste because of just poor rollout and bad logistics and stuff. So I'm, I'm hopeful, um, and you can tell me to quit hoping um, that <laughs> with the Johnson and Johnson that maybe we'll see less of that. And that if the, if the doses themselves are more durable, that we, we don't have that kind of, you know, falling through the cracks. Yeah. And I'm very excited for the Johnson and Johnson for that reason. I think there are a lot of advantages. One being, of course, that it doesn't need some sub-zero freezer to to stay viable. (laughs) The other being um, that it is just one shot. And so people don't have to take off as much work and um, it's just a lot more accessible to other communities. I know one thing that people are worried about is that because the Johnson Johnson is um, less um, 
affectatious, I believe is the word, that it's going to be sent to um, communities that are less, that have less of a voice and are more marginalized. But I think something that we've been trying to emphasize is that um, that's not necessarily the case. And like we said, the Johnson Johnson has a lot of advantages for essential workers, for example, who may not have accessibility to take off a lot of work and just more easy distribution. I think one thing that we've been emphasizing is after all our empowerment sessions with all the information, um, the vaccines are going to are have a hundred percent um f <laughs> sorry, just the words, hundred percent prevention of death. So like whichever one is most available to you is the one to take. And 66% is about what we see for uh, the flu shot, for example. So while these, the Pfizer and Moderna were incredible with their 99.5%, um, the, the Johnson Johnson is still safe and is still a great vaccine to take. So not to kind of feel like you're getting the worst vaccine of the bunch yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you, does We Got Us get involved at all? Um, I was invited to listen to a couple of uh, conversations here near where I live in Fairfax County in Virginia. And they were talking about, again, just distribution inequity and how to address that. And one of the things that I was surprised I'd never heard of, but this idea of trans creation of materials that rather than sort of um, translation word for word, that you actually work together to create the materials about dissemination. And um, is that something that you guys support communities in doing, or do you get involved with that at all? Yeah. So something that we've definitely been working on is making our own material to pass out to communities and also working with translators to not just directly translate the medical jargon that we use, but use words that the community is going to understand um, while also still being accurate in the translation. So um, that's absolutely something that we support, yeah. I also think it's just, it's huge because it's very important to work with communities and not try to do the work for communities or on behalf of these communities. Um, I think a lot of times people discount um, black communities, brown communities, immigrant communities, communities where um, other languages besides English are spoken. And these individuals are brilliant. They're smart. They know what's going on. Um, I come from one of these communities and I'm proud every day to have been um, born and raised in a black community that took care of me and fostered me to become who I am. So I think writing off these communities when there are amazing organizers doing this work already. And there are people there who have more reach and access than any one of us who just stepped into the community could ever imagine. I think it's very important to realize like the power that's already there and the infrastructure that may be informal, quote unquote, but that's already existing. And to try to integrate yourself into that um, to really have the biggest impact. So finding a community organization um, like We Got Us or like somebody else who's been there longer that already knows the lay of the land, that already knows what's going on and really trying to work with them and create a synergistic product that can just impact people um, in, in a huge way is something that I'm a big proponent of. And I love that We Got Us is very serious about making sure that we work with existing community infrastructure um, to make sure that everyone can be happy and healthy. 
it seems like an, another way that, I mean, some part of me still believes that COVID is the planet just trying to like finally flick us off and be like, listen, <laughs> you had your chance. But I am also so, um, I guess, grateful for the ways in which it is really pushing us to to talk with each other and to notice the ways, I mean, it's like a, a, a perfectly horrible real-time example of the systemic nature of racism and inequity and how that fits into healthcare and just how we understand each other and and even how we don't understand our own I mean we all have unconscious bias and I would imagine it being really exciting to be you guys and to be having these conversations and feeling by and I want to be really clear like one of the things we've been talking about is that this isn't about dumbing down the information. It's actually about stopping mystifying people. It's about making it accessible to, like Christian said, like people who are smart in a different way and who will do amazing things with the information if it's shared with them in a way that makes sense to their understanding of the world. So um, I think so much of it, I mean, I, I, as we talk about whiteness and how to undo whiteness, which, good Lord, we got our hands full with that. But um, if we could, the way we're doing this is very white and we're losing all this wisdom, like you talked about, Christian, that like people, people who have not been welcomed to the party are really good at organizing and mobilizing. And we're not accessing the the power of that learned and lived experience in this distribution effort. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that you say that because like when we think about it, the people who worked on this vaccine, worked on the language of this vaccine are people who are decades into their field. So like we said, even healthcare workers who have done a lot of research still walked away with understanding and more like language. I think like Christian hit on the head that it's just give, letting people understand things in different ways, but in a way that they again can like make informed decisions. And um, I think the word that you use, I might <laughs> budget, but perfectly, perfectly bad. <laughs> um, like I've been thinking about that so much with COVID because it's, it's frustrating that it's taken something like this to really unveil um, the disparities that have always existed, but, you know, kind of better late than never type of situation. Um, and I think coming from Massachusetts, which is a very liberal state, but also a state that doesn't always like to address some of the issues that they have. Um, this has really been interesting to see, particularly in Boston. You know, we can't ignore these issues anymore. Um, and now it's just about moving forward and improving the structures that we have in place. Yeah. Well, and I would think cities like Boston that really have a really tangible de facto segregation still, um, you know, but pretend they don't, <laughs> you have that extra barrier to get through. Well, and, and the heart of the Pilgrim story, you know, which takes us right, right, right to colonization and, and essentially the construct for, for racism. You know, I found it interesting. I saw little clips of the, the Oprah interview that everybody's talking about right now. And, and that she was shocked that someone allegedly in their royal family had expressed concern over the color, the darkness of the future child's skin and that she was shocked that someone within the royal family might say something like that. And I'm like, really? I mean, when we, especially for Canada and the U S North America being, you know, like the epitome of colonization, 
are we really shocked that something like that is being said? You know, so in, in talking about the history, you know, it's really calling on us to really look at our history. Decolonization is uh, something that a process that I'm going through and something that I'm very interested in. And it's asking us to really look at how our countries were created, you know, through genocide and stealing of land and, and on the backs of people of color to, to build um, what we know as our country today. So yes, I could see how Massachusetts might <laughs> have, have some issue with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Christian and Eileen, I know that you are both very busy people and have other things to do in your lives um, than tell us about your amazing work, like go do your amazing work and midterm exams and things. Um, if if either or both of you had a thing that you want to make sure our listeners that you either want to say again or that we didn't get to that you feel like is essential as people want to like, you know, as they sign off our listeners are people who will want to go then do something. And hopefully the first thing they'll do is go watch the video on your website. But then um, what, what can we do to be actively helpful? Um, I think understanding that a lot of this is just about making things make sense. So whether it's your own decision or helping other people make their decisions, it's about making it make sense. Um, and I think the biggest thing when we're talking about marginalized communities and those that want to help out in these communities that have been the hardest hit is that one of the reasons behind a lot of this hesitancy is um, a lot of historical aspects, but just that things aren't making sense. And so I think we have to try to work together to make things make sense for everyone. And what makes sense for me might not make sense for you, might not make sense for them, but um yeah, just trying to make things make sense. Um, and I think that's a broader thing um, in terms of our whole world. But <laughs> True. yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. And I will say that when you work together with intention, um, so intentionally working together, you will create something bigger than all of the parts. So the whole, will, the sum of the whole will be bigger than all of the parts. I don't know. But working together with intention is going to get us to where we need to get. I think one thing if people could walk away from is just checking your implicit bias. I think Cal, as you said, every single one of us has it, but it's just the reality of our society. We are ingrained with a lot of these messages that aren't true um, by any means. So, you know, when you're given a piece of information like black people are vaccine hesitant, ask yourself why, ask yourself the mechanisms behind that. And just, we live in an age where information we're always kind of absorbing and, we're not always checking it because it does take a bit of extra brain work and sometimes that's difficult, but take that time to really check your facts and just check yourself. Well, my parting comment is when there's an opportunity for me to engage with brilliant, dynamic young people such as yourselves, it gives me hope. <laughs> You know, I feel lifted after hearing both of you speak today and seeing what your organizations do. So I can't thank you enough for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And listeners, go check out their website, wegotusproject.org. I mean, I, the the people who are running this organization are going to save the world. 
And uh, we hope there are a lot more people like them. And uh, yeah, we can just magnify their efforts by uh, doing exactly what both Christian and Eileen suggested to us. And uh, we thank you both for being with us today and all of you listening. Uh, This has been another episode of Interdisciplinary, and uh, we're talking about all the things and making you feel all the feels so that you can go out and uh, change all the changes. So go give us some likes and stars and shares and all that stuff. Kathy, thanks for being with us. Eileen, Christian, thank you guys so much. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. New episodes will be posted weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you. Hey, this is the end of season one of Interdisciplinary. Thanks for coming on this adventure with us. We'll be back with you after April 1st, or will we? (laughs) Just kidding. We'll record our next episode on April 1st, and it'll be coming to you April 3rd. We'll look forward to you hearing us and us hearing from you then. Take care.